Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to class number four of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Uh, several of you have been very quick with suggestions here tonight for uh, what we should talk about. Um, Chris, I'm going to start with your suggestion here because uh, Brian has a suggestion, too, uh, which is that he wants to discuss the cards. We're totally discussing the cards. Uh, I haven't yet planned out, Chris, how to approach addressing your topic, which I'd really like to do. But it kind of sounds to me more like something that it would be really good for somebody to um, uh, to do at a conference. Anyway, Chris Swank's suggestion is, she says, we should discuss the feigned books and periodicals, the novel quotes, like a child's history of the Raven King, etc., and compare their usage with the corpus of Princess Irulan in Dune. It's, of course, a great comparison and a very interesting one. Um, one of the things... Um, well, I... Let's come back to that. Let's, let's keep thinking about that. And we'll definitely include that. I have scheduled a sort of a bonus class at the end. And I, at the very least, I promise we'll talk about that by the time we get to the end, sort of looking back at the big picture. Because I do think it's an interesting big picture question to sort of say, overall, what is the, um, what is the impact of those quotations and footnotes? And as you say, Chris, it's not just the footnotes, right? It's the citations in the footnotes, um, which themselves are so, are so interesting. And I, I, I agree, they have a really big impact. So, um, uh, so let's keep thinking about that. Uh, I'm not quite ready to talk about that tonight, mostly because, again, I want to I wanna, I wanna get closer to the end so we can look at sort of the bigger picture patterns uh, of that. But anyway, hi! <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Um, uh, before I get... Uh, actually, yeah, Tom Hillman has a great suggestion. He says, yeah, we should do a panel uh, on the subject of fake books uh, at uh, MythMoot 4. That's a great panel title. Um, I agree. Uh, anyway, okay, so um, before we get too far in, I wanted to uh, uh, do quick announcements here, because, of course, as I uh, said last week, of course, we're in the middle of heavy announcement season. We're in the middle of our fundraiser this year, um, which has been going really well. Um, we have... Um, uh, let me see. Oh, yeah, here's the page that I wanted to uh, show. This is our annual fun page, uh, just to sort of share that. So as you can see, we are almost three-quarters of the way to our initial goal, which is awesome. Uh, uh, people have been very generous. Uh, I wanted to explain this <laughs> this bottom rather peculiar uh, uh, measuring uh, stick down here. Uh, and that is, this is connected with the event that we had last night, uh, the Where's Wigand event, um, where I was doing a, a sort of a, a quick tour through some interesting places in Lord of the Rings Online and talking about the the, the kind of adaptation choices they have made um, and sort of some of the, the kind of adaptation and sub-creation they've done in Lotro, which I find so interesting. And uh, we announced a, a sort of a sub-goal that if we, if we raised 5000 dollars to support uh, the Lotro events. So, you know, people mention uh, the Lotro events in their uh, donation pledge that uh, uh, that we'll, we're going to do a special event where there's a there's this weird this sort of funny thing that you can do in uh, Lotro where you can turn yourself into a chicken and go across Middle-earth in the form of a chicken, which of course, as you can imagine, is spectacularly dangerous uh, because there are lots and lots of things uh, that try to kill you. Um, so 
that we'd said that if we raised two thousand uh, uh, dollars between last night uh, and uh, the other Lotro event at the end of the time, that we would uh, we'd do an event where I would become a chicken and 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 people would try to get me to Rivendell. We've made Rivendell. If we get to five thousand dollars, then we're going to go all the way to Helm's Deep, uh, and they're going to they're going to deliver me to uh, uh, to to Theoden. Though some of them were some people last night were joking that we should, of course, that the logical the superlative destination uh, for the chicken quest, of course, should be Amon Hen, which, of course, I found it hard to disagree with. So, anyway, we'll see. But it would be a very, a very long walk from the Shire, either to Helm's Deep or to Amon Hen, uh, and uh, I'm going to steer the chicken myself. Some people sort of take a shortcut on this and make the chicken automatically follow uh, some much more intimidating person. Um, I'm going to steer the chicken myself, uh, and so it will be a a, a rather peculiar walking tour uh, of, uh, of of Middle-earth. It should be a lot of fun. So anyway, I just wanted to explain what the chicken crossing the road uh, <laughs> indicator was down here. It's showing our progress towards our $5,000 goal. Um, so uh so anyway again if you would like to if you would like to uh to donate to Signum and have your donation count towards uh the uh making the chicken event happen uh then uh you can just mention Lotro in the dedication line of your uh of your gift and uh, we will make sure to count it towards the chicken quest. Uh anyway um so anyway, again, thanks again to everybody who has donated. It means so much uh, to us and, and really helps us to carry on. You know, the $20,000 will really keep the lights on for the uh, for the whole year, and that just is uh, is such an important thing. Signum, of course, is a totally tax-exempt uh, uh, institution, so your uh, your donation in America is uh, is tax-deductible. As I should say it's tax-deductible in America. Um so uh, I, I, you know, I just wanted to, to to make sure everybody knew about that. The fund drive is going to be going on for another few weeks. This is for our annual fund, uh, so it'll be going throughout the year. But our campaign will be going on for another couple of weeks here, uh, up through our big webathon extravaganza on Halloween Day, um, which is shaping up to be really cool. We're going to have a special lecture uh, by Dimitra Femi on Halloween and the the roots of Halloween in literature, which should be really cool. We're going to do another special Lotro event. We're going to do. Um, uh, a special film film event. I'm going to do my other uh, my my special Mythgard Academy bonus one off class where we're going to be looking at the Father Christmas letters. Um, it's uh, it's going to be great. It's it's going to be an awesome day. So anyway, uh, that's actually the other thing I wanted to just say really quick, just to remind you of upcoming events. The two things most immediately upcoming here. Um, is uh, first our, our special event with uh, fantasy author Jim Butcher, uh, live next Tuesday evening, October 13th. Um, uh, Jim Butcher, of course, is the author of The Dresden Files and The Codex Alera. Um, he is uh, my favorite modern fantasist, uh, and um, he's a, a big Tolkien fan. We're going to be talking with him not only about his books and about Tolkien, but we're going to be talking about uh, adaptation. We're going to get his, uh, we're going to let him weigh in on the film film project, and uh, uh, and uh, we're going to probably uh, ask him embarrassing questions about the mm, not, I think, very good adaptation of the Dresden Files, which uh, aired on sci-fi. Uh, if you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but anyway, and then uh, the other one that I wanted to draw your attention to is in about a week and a half, 
on Thursday the 22nd. Uh, I'm going to be doing my special Mythgard Academy one-off class session on Doctor Who. Um, and I am, I- I'll tell you, I haven't 100% decided, but I'm now very strongly leaning towards doing Blink. Is what we're going to do. I think we're. Gonna, I'm only going to do one episode, Karita. I can't possibly do more than one. I mean, that's that would be, uh, um, uh, th- that would be insane. Um, so, uh, but yeah. I, and Patrick, I'm 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 almost caught up. I'm almost caught up. I'm uh, just finished episode ten of season eight, actually. So, well, I should say I'm almost caught up on Netflix. I haven't been watching season nine. Um, but uh, but uh, and anyway, I'm 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 almost caught up through season eight on Netflix. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think I'm gonna go. Blink has been the one that has gotten sort of the most informal votes. Um, but. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, 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 Karita, it would be, uh, doing more than one Doctor Who episode during a single class would be even more insane than, uh, trying to run in the form of a chicken all the way across Middle-earth, so, um, so anyway, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that, I, well, I'm sure that talking about Blink is going to be fun, uh, so I'm looking forward to that, so that's going to be on Thursday night, October 22nd, at an earlier time, 7 p.m. Eastern time, um, so, um, so yeah, Karita Blink is was is very high on my own favorite uh, list as well, uh, and of course, what I, I it, for the purposes of this little one shot class, I wanted to make sure to choose an episode that is really pretty self contained. Um, that you know, so it's it's not going to require a whole lot of overarching plot setup. That was something I thought was uh, pretty important. I one of the reasons I've been laboring over this choice is that I really, really want to get something with Matt Smith and the Ponds, because um, I'm a huge fan of Matt Smith and the Ponds. Uh, so I've been kind of wavering on that one. But I think in the end, uh, I think I'm going to go with Blink. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So that's, again, Thursday, the 22nd at 7 p.m., and next Tuesday... Uh, October 13th at 8 is our conversation with Jim Butcher. So those are our next two big events that are coming up. Okay. All right. With that said, um, let's... uh, let's, uh, Yeah, I know, Karita. It rules out a lot of episodes. There are a whole bunch of episodes that I really liked that I would love to talk about, but so many of them were... You know, like the ones building up to the season finale in one of the one of the seasons or another, and I, those I just felt like I, it would be really hard to do. Um, uh, David, the Doctor's wife is high on my list. It is. Uh, I, I I I like that episode a lot, um, but um, but I think in the end, I think I think I'm going to end up going with Blink. I, I'm pretty sure that's where we're going to be. Uh, that's where we're going to be headed. But okay. Let's get to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So, we just left off last time, after looking at uh, Vinculus and his prophecy, looking at sort of the, the, what he claims to be sort of a message from the Raven King, or the prophecy of the Raven King. Um, and we were, so I'd kind of gone backwards to look at that uh, at, at the end of class last time. And now we're jumping back forward, though it's still last class's reading assignment, um, to look at Childermas is finally sort of uh, tracking down Vinculus and confronting him to find out where exactly he is getting what he's saying. And, and uh, you know, so Childermas doing his, um, doing his research here and trying to uh, get Vinculus in trouble. I, I loved... 
Childress's strategy, right? How he was trying to convince, uh, he's trying to entrap Vinculus into giving him uh, a uh, a spell to enchant uh, one of the virgin daughters of the king, uh, thinking that uh, they could use that as leverage to get the king to oust Vinculus. A really uh, clever and rather ruthless plan on the part of Childress, I have to say. Um, but um, but anyway, we're 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 going to jump ahead a little bit from there. Uh, to, no, we're not going to talk about the improbable milliner. Um, rather, we're going to talk about a conversation about Vinculus's book, as Vinculus claims to have read the prophecy from a book, which seems to be the most surprising thing to Childermas, uh, and of course through him to Mister Norrell, that Vinculus could possibly have said. Okay, so where are we here? There we are. Okay. Quite. So, since you did not write this prophecy yourself, where did you find it? For a moment, Vinculus looked as if he would not answer. But then he said, It is written in a book. A book? What book? My master's library is extensive. He knows of no such prophecy. Vinculus said nothing. Is it your book? asked Childermas. It is in my keeping. And where did you get a book? Where did you steal it? I did not steal it. It is my inheritance. It is the greatest glory and the greatest burden that has been given to any man in this age. If it is really valuable, then you can sell it to Norrell. He has paid great prices for books before now. The magician of Hanover Square will never own this book. He will never even see it. Okay, what do we... Um, what do we see here? What, what, do, we, what do we learn now... Again, this is one of those places where it's kind of, it's a little bit hard, I know, when you have read the whole book and you now know this, of course, this conversation sounds so much different uh, now. Remember, I'm still just on my second time through the book. Um, sounds much different now the second time through than it, certainly, than it did the first time through. Um, but I want to, I want to continue to try to talk about the story within the frame of the story. Um, you know, we, we, we can go back later on and comment about how things that are revealed later on change what we saw earlier on. Um, but I want, I, want, I want to try to limit that as we go through. And the reason, again, as I think I've explained before, but the reason I want to do this is that I find one of the things that Clark does really, really well throughout this book is the revelation of information. Um, the way that she manages how much we know and how we figure out what we know, I think is very masterfully done in this book. It's one of the things which, on a sort of a purely technical level, um, that is purely technical in terms of how she establishes, how she executes this story as a sub-creation, the way that she manages that um, uh, is, I find, entirely remarkable. Um, it is... Um, she has very, very great discretion. Um, she withholds so much, and not just sort of spitefully. There are sometimes, <laughs> spitefully, I say, there are sometimes I think when authors sort of create mystery simply by withholding information um, in a way which I guess I would kind of call a little bit 
cheap. That is, they describe a scene, but they leave a thing out, right? And then later on tell you, oh, I, there was also this other thing that I didn't tell you about, right? Um, like, a, you know, not great mystery writers do that kind of thing. Um, that's not the kind of withholding of information that I'm talking about. Um, the kind of thing I'm talking about is the much bigger picture stuff. Uh, the way in which, uh, you know, f- as from the beginning of the class, we've been talking about, like, even the question of what exactly is English magic, um, how, what is magic? How does it work? Um, I, I don't think... We've almost never seen anybody do magic yet. Uh, I mean, it, it's we're a quarter of the way through the book, and there's been one, maybe one, spell described? As the, and not spells working described, but the actual doing of it by a person. Um, we don't. We see the stones in the York, not min, minstrel, uh, or uh, not minster, speaking. But we don't see Mister Norrell casting the spell. He does that from his house, right? We see the description of the illusion of the ships that are blockading the French ports, but we don't see Mister Norrell casting that spell. He's back in England, right? Um, many times we are told about her. We see the 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 results of a magical spell. But we've not... The only time that I can think of to this point in the book, um, to the end of last uh, last week's reading, through book one, uh, the only time that I can think that we see anybody do magic is Jonathan Strange at the end when he conjures up that vision of, uh, of, of Mr. Norrell in the basin. I can't think of any other examples of any time we've seen somebody do magic sort of live on stage, as it were, right? Um, that to me is um, that's that's the kind of withholding of information that I'm talking about. That's the you know the 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 things that the the book as a whole is sort of taking for granted entirely, and leaving us to sort of figure out and kind of piece through and almost kind of acculturate ourselves uh, within. Which I think is really cool. But anyway, you guys have uh, uh, here, as I've been chattering along, been making some really good observations, which I want to go through. Um, okay. Um, yeah, good. Oh, Nancy, what a marvelous point. Nancy uh, has noticed very sharply um, that uh, um, he noticed that he does not say that he read it in a book. He said, it is written in a book. Uh, that is a very carefully phrased sentence, Nancy. That's well noticed. I hadn't, I hadn't been thinking about that, but of course you're absolutely right. Um, very good. Uh, yeah, uh, James is thanking me uh, for my discretion on behalf of the people who are reading the book for the first time. That, James, of course, is another reason why I want to do it. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. John... Malin makes an interesting point. I'm not sure I 100% agree with you, but he, he says uh, uh, Vinculus uh, seems a bit less scoundrelly than the other Yellow Curtain magicians. Sort of. I, I think I would qualify that. He seems to be every bit as much of a scoundrel in the sense that he's a pickpocket and a charlatan and all that kind of thing. Um, but there's more to him. He's not only a scoundrel. Um, he is not merely somebody who is using his role as a as a street magician to beg and steal. Um, he does do that, but it's not only that. Um, 
and this is what I think. This is why I wanted to talk about this passage, uh, John, because I, I do think that we can see what is there, what is the something more for Vinculus. Um, remember, Norrell wanted to just dismiss him. Um, I mean, of course, he did dismiss him from his presence, but um, when he started spouting his his message, you know, his prophecy from the Raven King, Mr. Norrell wanted to be like, oh, yeah, you know, pff, everybody does this, right? Oh, how unoriginal, Mr. Scoundrel Street Magician. Um, you're going to spout a message to me from the Raven King, right? Everybody does that. Um, but there seems to be something different about Vinculus. Um, and we looked at it last time when he, the very first thing that he says to Mr. Norrell, he gets Mr. Norrell exactly right. Like he, he hits Mr. Norrell on a sensitive point, right? That he's delayed so long. Um, and Mr. Norrell recognizes, yes, it's true. I was ready years ago. That, that opening exchange between the two of them, I think sets a really important tone, right? So that even when Mr. Norrell is just wanting to lump him in with all the other rascally magicians, um, he, Mr. Norrell, in doing that, is being almost a little bit dishonest. That is, he sort of felt it, too. There was some significance to the first thing that he said. Um, if his opening remark is sort of meant to, or, you know, is, 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 is supposed to establish sort of his credentials uh, as a prophet... It did a pretty good job, actually. But Mr. Noll doesn't want to confess that, right? He sort of is comforting himself with the idea that he's just another scoundrel like everybody else. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carita, that's a really great observation. Carita points out that both of the uh, very careful answers that Vinculus gives, it is written in a book, and it is in my keeping, have the sound of technically truthful answers in fairy tales. And Carita, I would even take that one step further to say technically truthful answers given by fairies, right? I mean, that's the way fairies talk. Um, they say a thing which is technically true, but they are saying it in order to deceive you or in order to lead you to uh, come to a wrong conclusion or to carry on with the long, wrong conclusion you are already, uh, you are you have already come to, right? Um so I agree, Karita, even before we know sort of the answer to this mystery, even before we understand the truth about Vinculus's book, we can, if we, if we, if, if we have a, a carefully tuned ear here, I agree with you, we can detect that sense there. Um, is it your book? Answer, it is in my keeping. And the, 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 the evidence there, the, the sort of uh, trademark of that kind of response is the indirectness of the response, right? Um, uh, you can see, you know, where did you find it? The logical, simple answer would be, I found it in a book, or I read it in a book, right? Just like Nancy said, but that's not what he says. It is written in a book, he says instead. Is it your book? It is in my keeping. He's not exactly answered the question, though he has said something which makes it sound like. And so, of course, when uh, uh, even um, Childermas picks up on that, Right on um, the fact that it sounds like he's equivocating. You know, is it your book? It is in my keeping. Okay, so if it's not your book, but it's in your keeping, that's there's a pretty obvious explanation for that, right? Where did you steal it? Right? Why? You know, so okay, so you're holding somebody else's book, um, but that's not. But he says now unequivocally, I did not steal it. It is my inheritance. It is the greatest glory and greatest burden that has been given to any man in this age. Created. Notice how this is now. Riddling talk, openly riddling talk, right? 
Um, it is the greatest glory and the greatest burden that has been given to any man in this age. That's a riddle that begs to be understood now, right? So it's it's now it seems relatively plain that register that he is kind of operating in there. Um, yeah, yeah. Kristen is sort of you know suggesting, of course, there is you know the alternative to the stealing uh, interpretation is that he has some sort of stewardship over it, right? That it's it's not his book, but it's in his keeping. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Kate. Um, uh, Kate, of course. Sorry, Kate is referring back to the what I was saying before about the the way, the slow way in which things are revealed over the course of the book. Um, Kate is pointing out that this mirrors the growth in knowledge of Strange and Norrell and others. Yeah, it does, and it's one of the things that I think makes this book so successful. Uh, as a sub-creation because it really brings us as readers into the position. There are some things there are some things that we are very ignorant compared to everybody else. Everybody else was raised on stories of the Raven King and English magic and uh, you know that's just sort of as natural as anything to them and we don't really know anything about that. Um, and yet there are many things about what magic actually is and how it really works that we're on the same footing with everybody else, right? I mean, remember, even Draw Light and Lascelles, who are trying to use Mr. Norrell and his magic, don't understand it, right? When he starts talking about raising Lady Pole back, or these almost, not quite Lady Pole, uh, back from the dead, they assume he's joking or something, right? They, they have the faintest clue that that is a thing that could actually happen, right? Again, so when we sort of share their ignorance and perhaps uh, perhaps their surprise. Um, yeah, yeah. Chris, uh, uh, Chris Swank, you're absolutely right. There is no better way to annoy Norrell than to tell him there is a book relating to magic somewhere in England that he has never seen, never even heard of, and he cannot have it for any price, and that it is in the keeping of a yellow curtain charlatan like Vinculus is the cherry on top. Uh, absolutely. Uh, isn't it just awful? And Chris, you do sort of get the sense that one of the... Um, th- that Vinculus enjoys that right? Um, the magician of Hanover Square will never own this book. He will never even see it, right? Um, and, um, and Chris, I think when I was reading it through the first time, that's what I thought was the, that's how I read the sort of riddling speech by Vinculus here. I read that as him taunting Norrell through Childermas, right? Um, and, and not only that, but even sort of trying to protect himself, Right, so long as Noro believes there is a, an important book of magic that he's never even heard of, and that Vinculus alone knows, what, he's not going to do anything too extreme. Right? Um, in fact, he may even protect him, or something, because he's going to just be burning with curiosity. Um, so I saw that as a play by Vinculus, and I think it is a play by Vinculus. Um, but uh, but you're absolutely right that it's. Um, uh, I agree with you that it, it is it is delicious plotting by 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 Clark indeed, um, yeah, very good, very good, um, and yet yeah, Philip, I think you know, Philip Menzies says Vinculus is not the charlatan that Norrell and everyone thinks he is. No, he's a different kind of charlatan. I mean, he is a charlatan. Right? I mean, he does he does stand on the street corner and fake stuff to trick people out of money. I mean, that's by definition, a charlatan, right? Um, so, 
he is, but but I think I that you are exactly sort of technically correct, Philip, in saying that he's not the charlatan that Norrell thinks he is, right? Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Carita says he's a scoundrel with a with a bonus of of actual talent. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Kate Neville said when she first read it, she thought that the impl- that the implication he was making is that he had uh, destroyed the book after he after he heard the prophecy. Um, it's 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 possible. It's possible. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, yeah, Tom. I I I also I agree that uh, Vinkius does have a rather a rascally look. I was I was I was I was I was thinking just the same thing. Um, yeah, good. Patrick says that he's a charlatan, but it seem, he seems to be a charlatan primarily in order to conceal uh, his talent. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, that there is a sense in which he wants to be dismissed, perhaps. Though, you know, Vinculus's motivations, um, it's worth keeping an eye on, I think, because I'm not sure I really understand them. Um, but let's go ahead and look at the cards. Okay. The fifth card was the Valet de Coupe, the page, the page of Cups. One naturally thinks of a page as being a youthful person, but the picture showed a mature man with a bowed head. His hair was shaggy and his beard was thick. In his left hand he carried a heavy cup, yet it could not be that which gave such an odd strained expression to his countenance, not unless it were the heaviest cup in the world. No, it must be some other burden, not immediately apparent. Owing to the materials which Childermas had been compelled to use to construct his cards, this picture had a most peculiar look. It had been drawn upon the back of a letter, and the writing showed through the paper. The man's clothes were a massive scribble, and even his face and hands bore parts of the letters. Vinculus laughed when he saw it, as though he recognized it. He gave the card three taps in friendly greeting. Perhaps it was this that made Childermas less certain than he had been before. "'You have a message to deliver to someone,' he said in an uncertain tone. Vinculus nodded. "'And will the next card show me this person?' he asked. "'Yes.' "'Ah!' exclaimed Vinculus, and turned over the sixth card himself." All right, one more. The sixth card was just finishing it. The sixth card was the Cavalier de Baton, the Knight of Wands. A man in a broad-brimmed hat sat upon a horse of a pale color. The countryside through which he rode was indicated by a few rocks and tufts of grass at his horse's hooves. His clothes were well-made and expensive-looking, but for some inexplicable reason he was carrying a heavy club. Even to call call it a club was to make it sound grander than it was. It was scarcely more than a thick branch torn from a tree or hedge. There were still twigs and leaves protruding from it. Okay. There's a a lot from the cards, and there is one more from the cards that I do want to talk about, that that I do want to come to uh, 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 later on. Um, I love the whole card sequence. Um, But... um, Let's start with the second one here. Who's this? Who's this, and how do we know? How does this card work? 
this illustration? How are we supposed to be interpreting this interpretation? Who's Vincius's message for? Who is this person, the Knight of Wands? Yeah, David Baxter, I agree with you. It starts rather ominously, right? Um, uh, the uh, uh, sorry, I'm on the wrong page here. Okay, right. Uh, um, he sat upon a horse of a pale color, right? And it's like, and the name of him that sat upon him was Death, right? Tom Hillman was thinking the same thing. It's a little ominous, agreed, right? Yeah, it's um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's strange. It's clearly Jonathan Strange, right? Um, how do we know? How do we know this is Jonathan Strange? Unquestionably, unequivocally, Jonathan Strange. How do we know? The Twigs and Leaves, the Strange Club. Uh, uh, Rachel, exactly, exactly. Um, the description of the image on Childermas's card is exactly the same. It's... It's not just that this sort of symbolically represents Jonathan Strange in some kind of way, though, of course, we can't rule out that there is, in fact, some symbolism involved here as well. It's a literal depiction. Um, just, is it what, is, it's the next chapter? Um, a couple chapters, anyway, very soon after this, right, we meet Jonathan Strange for the first time. And he meets Vinculus, Right? So, and Vinculus delivers a message to him. And uh, what does he look like? Exactly like this. He's riding on horseback in expensive clothes. We're not, are we told about his hat? I'm not sure we're told about his hat. But anyway, we're told that he's riding a horse. We're told that he's dressed nicely. Um, and he has a club. Exactly like that. Because remember when he, he, remember he, so he passes the villagers who've got their like weapons and pitchforks and things, and and it looks like they they've like cornered somebody under the hedge, and then he imagines uh, his uh, his 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 girlfriend or his wishes she were his girlfriend, um, asking him if he had stopped to help the poor man who was trapped under the hedge, and him saying no, and he couldn't bear to do that, so he's going to go back, and he asks Jeremy Johns, his manservant now, um, the one who sort of killed his father, though, you know, one can hardly blame Jeremy Johns, uh, Jeremy Johns exactly for that, but anyhow, um, he asks Jeremy if he's got any pistols or anything, and he doesn't have, so he cuts them clubs, and he goes back with a club fresh cut from a bush, uh, and it's still got twigs and leaves growing off of it, and goes back, right? So, what we learn, in a sense, about these cards is, again, this, this, this is not abstract. Right? Again, not saying there isn't some, you know, the idea that he's carrying a club, and that it's all green and leaves are coming from it, I'm not saying that we could not also do some uh, symbolic interpretation of that. Right, um, and see that as a kind of a symbol for where Strange is in his magical career, um, but that's not the point. Right, the point is the immediate relevance of it. Um, this the card is is being revealed in order to identify the person to whom uh, Vinculus is supposed to deliver a message. Right, and what we get is like a photo <laughs> of the person to whom he's going to deliver a message, who's going to be dressed exactly like that, holding a club exactly like that, uh, when Vinculus meets him, right? Um, so that 
I, again, to me, this establishes a really interesting pattern for interpreting these cards, right? Um, that, again, it, this is not obscure, this is not, you know, sort of off the wall, it's not heavily symbolic, um, it's, um, it's very, it's very simple, right? Um, notice the correlation, um, notice the correlation in Childermas's cards, uh, I mean, there seems to me a pretty clear correlation between uh, the, the 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 between wands and magicians. The magicians all seem to be wand uh, uh, associated with wands, which I suppose doesn't seem all that peculiar. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so let's go back to the earlier description, the description of the page of cups. Which Vinculus, both Vinculus and Childermas seem to identify with Vinculus himself, right? Vinculus laughs as if he recognizes it and gives it three taps in friendly greeting. He's like, "Hey, look, it's me." And Childermas looks at it and says, "His his his interpretation of the card is, you have a message to deliver to someone, right? He's uncertain about it, but that's his. But it, so again, he sees this as being." you know, sort of directly relevant to Vinculus there, too. Um, Okay, so what do we get from this description, then? If the other one is Jonathan Strange in a simple pictorial way, what do we see here? Um, he's, He's a page, but he's not youthful. He's a mature man with a bowed head. His hair is shaggy and his beard is thick. He carries a heavy cup, and he has a strained expression to his countenance. He is carrying some not immediately apparent burden, which of course also connects right back to what Vinculus just said about himself, that the book that is in his keeping is the greatest glory and the greatest burden that has ever been laid upon anybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, um, I agree. Page is delightful, but I, I'll say no more. Um, the writing shows through the paper, so that the juxtaposition of the writing and the man, especially in the context of of him talking about being the keeper of this book, the idea that writing is sort of superimposed upon him in this way, um, would seems now again his interpretation. Um, Childermas's interpretation, I'm using very vague pronouns, um, is that he has a message to deliver to someone. I think that it's probably the writing, like that is the superposition, the superimposition of the writing upon the picture of the figure which represents Vinculus, um, that that seems to be what Childermas's interpreting as this is a the, you have a message right you've there you're 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 carrying words right and you're you're conveying you're supposed to be conveying these words to somebody um that seems to be uh how Childermas is interpreting this and it seems of course a perfectly plausible um explanation but you notice how closely how detailed this description is and how closely it seems to fit with Vinculus, not physically, not in this, not quite in the simple, straightforward, 
um, you know, again, like photo, almost photographic way that the picture of Jonathan Strange connects to Jonathan Strange as he will look when Vincuous meets him uh, in order to deliver his burden. Um, but still a careful description which picks up very closely on those details that Vincuous has just said, especially the part about the burden. Um, and I think the um, the reference to um, the reference to um, what well, the mere fact that he's a page, right? He's a servant. Um, he is bearing the cup of another, right? And that's the role that he has sort of claimed, right? He's the servant of the Raven King. He's the messenger of the Raven King. That's the role that he has adopted. Right, um, and so Page seems to sort of fit him in that regard. Um, yeah, James, it is interesting how uh, how Vincius seems to be much more certain of the interpretation and meaning in this scene than Childemus. It, it it is it is interesting, um, and you remember the sequence when. Uh, Vincuous wants to try to tell Childemus's fortune, and he puts down these cards, and he doesn't say anything. He says he can't make anything of it. Childemus says, my life is there, right? Uh, but you can't see it, right? He, he, he mocks him for his inability to interpret the cards. Um, though Childemus, to Childemus himself, you know, his life is plainly laid bare, uh, on the table right there. Um, it kind of makes you wonder, is uh, Vincuous just playing his own cards a little closer to the to the to the chest than Childemus is, right? Does can he in fact interpret them? Does he have some kind of idea, um, and just isn't mentioning it? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, to me, one of the questions, uh, one of the questions that I kind of emerge from this whole sequence with about Vincuous is exactly how clueless is he? Or you could say it the other way around, right? Exactly how clueful is he? Um, is he, in fact, a genius magician mastermind who is playing a long game with the other two magicians? That reading seemed to me eminently possible uh, at the end of this passage with Childermas. Um Or is he not? Is he, in fact, as clueless as he uh, as he sort of wants to appear, you know, he says he's just a servant, right? And and the the Page of Cups suggests that he is, in fact, just a servant. That he doesn't have the answers and he doesn't really know what's going on. Maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah, Kate, that's a wonderful observation. Uh, Kate Neville points out that there are many servants in this story. Fairies can be servants. The whole, the whole question of fairy servants... Um, Strange and Norrell claim to be servants of, of, of the Empire, right? Servants of Britain. Um, <clears throat> there's, of course, Stephen Black and Childermas and Jeremy Johns. Um, yeah, I, I, that, Kate, I would go so far as to say that that's sort of, that that's, that's a theme. Now, of course, you might say, well, look, this is 19th century English society. Of course, there are lots of servants. Um, uh, you know, why, why would that be sort of a peculiar theme? But I think that Kate's absolutely right. Um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the question of servitude and who's going to serve and who's going to be master. Remember, that was the issue with uh, Mr. Norrell and the gentleman with the thistle-down hair when they had their confrontation, which we looked at last time, um, where this fairy is coming to him and saying, hey, I'm going to sign up to be your fairy servant. And Norrell says, heck no, because then 
basically my I'm going to be serving you. My magic will be serving you, um, and uh, you know you're going to be the one who is going to be sort of getting all you know. We're, you're going to bind. Uh, you know, England in servitude to a degenerate race, which he says rather um, uh, uh, rudely, um, uh, perhaps unwisely. Um, but again, so that whole question of servitude and who's going to serve whom, and then of course Stephen Black, almost by himself, Stephen Black, as not only a servant but as a Negro servant, um, certainly puts that whole question uh, pretty firmly on uh, pretty firmly on the table. Um, so yeah, Kate, I think that's definitely an interesting motif to sort of be looking at uh, all the way through. And of course, as with so many things, uh, sort of hovering above that theme all the way through is the Raven King, right? Um, the nameless slave. Okay, yeah, good, good. Um, very good. Um Yeah, um, Brian Yoder, what a great question. Brian says, what is the magic of the cards? Why do they work? No idea, Brian, the faintest idea. Um, in fact, it's so peculiar in this whole passage. I mean, like with those two, right? It's not just, here is this symbolic depiction. I mean, like the, the, the Knight of Wands that he puts down, which is Jonathan Strange. So, like, unbeknownst to himself, Childemus has been using, like, a portrait of Jonathan Strange, essentially. Uh, you know, as his, you know, he copied these drawing these, the pictures off of this other deck, you know, from the, 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 the sailor who, who died and had to leave. Um, uh, so he copied these off another deck. He didn't make these up, right? Um, he's certainly not improvising them for the occasion, but it turns out that when the cards are read on this occasion, that the image on the card is not just sort of symbolically apposite to the situation and can be interpreted in such a way following the conventions of tarot interpretation um, such that something can be revealed about the question. It's not like that at all, right? I mean, that's Jonathan Strange on the picture, right? And that other one, though more abstract, not quite as literally, not quite as photographic as the Jonathan Strange one, the other one is Vinculus. So apparently, again, uh, who knew, right, that he's been using, that Vinculus has been his page of cups uh, all the way through. There does seem to be magic at work. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, Kristen, you're right, some of them he did from memory. So is magic operative right now, or was magic operative at the time that he drew the cards? Um uh yeah yeah um and but john you're right it's changeable right and we're going to we're going to we're going to come back to that um uh we're going to come back we're we I do want to come back and look at uh look at that passage but I want to look at it in the context of uh of of some of the things I'm jumping around a little bit more tonight um let's stick for a, for a minute now on Jonathan Strange and let's learn a little bit more about magic, but first let's get uh, introduced to uh, oh, an excellent Sharon. What a wonderful question! Uh, thanks for pointing this out. She says, "How does this compare to English magic?" Exactly. Here seems to be our first example, right? This is not English magic. 
Those were not English cards. He didn't copy them from an Englishman, right? Um, it uh, would appear, Childermas's cards would appear to be the first genuinely non-English magic we have seen all the way through. But it's kind of ironic, given that the Raven King seems to be all over it, right? Um, but uh, but anyway, let's we'll, 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 we'll come back to the Raven King bit. Instead, let's talk about Jonathan Strange, the 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 guy, um, and I want to go backwards again a little bit to where to how we first get introduced to him, because I find the story of Lawrence Strange. No, it's not that I find the story of Lawrence Strange peculiar. I find the way that Susanna Clark chooses to introduce us to Jonathan Strange peculiar. Okay, maybe we needed to know that Lawrence. Lawrence Strange was a horrible person. Maybe we needed to know that. Maybe that helps us to understand Jonathan Strange's character in some way. Um, there are certainly some very pleasant contrasts uh, between Jonathan and his father, uh, uh, not the least of which, of course, is demonstrated in the way that they treat, uh, you know, in the relationship with Jeremy Johns, right? Jeremy Johns becomes like the living symbol of the difference between father and son uh, in some sense and in some circumstances. But... Um, it is the way we're introduced to it is odd, frightfully odd, right? Um, the heartbra- heartbreak farm business, right? Um, the path that began opposite Blackstock's alehouse and wound up the hill was fearfully overgrown. Indeed, it scarcely deserved the name of path, for young saplings grew in the middle of it, which the strong wind took and turned into rods to lash the new manservant as he struggled past. It's the wind, right? It's the wind just happened to blow those into, like, rods that you would use to beat somebody with and beat him as he walked by. It's just kind of happens sometimes, you know. It happens sometimes. Haven't you ever been walking down a path where there are saplings and the wind is blowing so hard that it just whips the saplings around and beats you like you're being beaten with rods? It's never happened to me, but I thought that maybe it might have happened to you. Uh, Anyway, by the time he had traveled half a mile, he felt as if he had fought several strong men one after another. And being a hot-headed sort of person who was always getting into quarrels in public places, it was a sensation perfectly familiar to him. I love love that uh, very understated sense of humor that Clark has. I love her parentheses. He cursed Wyvern for a negligent idle fellow who could not even keep his hedges in order. It was only an hour or so it was only after an hour or so that he reached a place which might have been a field once, but which was now a wilderness of briars and brambles, and he began to regret that he had not brought an axe with him. He left the horse tied to a tree and tried to push his way through. The thorns were large, sharp, and plentiful. Several times he found himself pinned into the briar bushes in so many places, and in such an elaborate fashion, an arm up here, a leg twisted behind him, that he began to despair of ever getting out again. It seemed odd that anyone could live behind such a high hedge of thorns, and he began to think that it would be no great surprise to discover that Mr. Wyvern had been asleep for a hundred years or so. Well, I shall not mind that so much, he thought, as long as I am not expected to kiss him. What's going on? What on earth is going on here? 
how do we as readers receive this whole chapter? We interrupt the story of Mr. Norrell and his reestablishment of English magic to tell you the apparently irrelevant story of Lawrence Strange and the highly unorthodox way in which he persecutes the help. Right? If not for the fact that Lawrence, that, that, that the man's last name is Strange, and that Jonathan Strange, though he has never been introduced, has been alluded to throughout the book. In fact, he's quoted, you'll remember, in paragraph two of chapter one of the book, um, and we get the citation to uh, the book that Jonathan Strange wrote um, on page one uh, of, uh, of, of chapter one. So again, it's... Um, uh, if not for that, we wouldn't have the faintest idea of who this guy is, right? Um, what's going on here, though? Now, when I say what's going on here, of course, I don't mean, like, literally in the plot. I mean, I follow the story, right? I, I'm, we've got the remarkably, unusually sadistic Lawrence Strange, um, who appears to really enjoy inflicting suffering on people, and has found this unexpected and highly creative way um, to um, punish Jeremy Johns for yelling at him. Um, more. More. What, what's the atmosphere that is established here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, John Moline says, Heartbreak Farm sounds reminiscent of a fairy location. Sounds very reminiscent. In fact, you remember the other fairy location is uh, uh, Lost Hope, right? Heartbreak Farm sounds a lot like Lost Hope. Maybe it's uh, maybe it, uh, it's uh, on the lands of Lost Hope uh, and, you know, sort of pays rent to Lost Hope. That would seem uh, sort of appropriate. Um in case we didn't catch it, by the end of the paragraph, we have the explicit... Jeremy Johns himself is thinking he must be in a fairy tale by the end of this, right? The description of him going down this path... He's told by his master that there's a path that he's supposed to follow, and he can see that there's a path, but it's but he ends up forcing his way through. It's like he fi- feels like he is entering some kind of uh, nightmarish, John, I- I'll give you that... Um, some kind of nightmarish um, other world. Uh, Tom Hillman says it reminds him of Jonathan Harker's approach to Castle Dracula. That was a great deal more civilized, of course, Jonathan Harker's approach. Um, but it's... Um, but but I hear you. Yeah, it has uh, has some of those kinds of elements, and Sharon, I agree. Any place behind a high hedge of thorns is suspect. Like that. Remember, that's you'll notice, Sharon. That's when Jeremy Johns himself starts to suspect, right? Um, when this, when the, you know, anyone who lives behind a, this high of a hedge of thorns, um, you know, he wouldn't be surprised to find Mister Wyvern had been asleep for a hundred years or so, right? And of course, it doesn't help that his name is Wyvern, right? Uh, which is a, which is a, w- related to the dragon. So it's like you're you're going through to is is this actually a dragon's lair that he's going to? That begins to seem almost plausible at this point. That uh, sort of the final, um, uh, you know, the final uh, 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 flourish at the end of Lawrence Strange's revenge here is going to be the fact that Mr. Wyvern is actually a dragon who will then eat Jeremy Johns. Hooray! Happy ending, right? That that seems to be um, um, sort of where it's going. Claudia, yes, the hedge, high hedge of thorns is very Sleeping Beauty. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
And uh, <laughs> Kristen says he probably started praying to St. George, the patron saint of England, the dragon slayer. Yes, yes, indeed. Maybe he w- would, sounds like it would be quite a good idea. Um, Sarah Lagarde points out the Jeremy story sounds like scenes from a dozen different Grimm's fairy tales. Absolutely. And it does... Um, and Sarah Lagarde absolutely also then points out the way that Lawrence Strange is built up as the giant that the hitherto unnamed servant slew. Absolutely. That's exactly how it works, right? Jeremy Johns becomes Jack the Giant Killer by the end of this story, right? With Lawrence Strange as the giant. Okay. Um, and, uh, and now, okay. Is there actually... So... My question is... Okay, no. It's still the same question. What is going on? Where are we? Is there actual magic going on? Is there actual fairy magic going on? I mean, in another book, we might be like, ooh, that's like a fun metaphor, right? It's like fairy. It's like... the. But, I mean, come on, right? I mean, he could be going into the other world. Um, Lawrence Strange could be a fairy, but he certainly seems malicious enough for one. Um, I mean, Lawrence Strange and the man, the gentleman with the, with the thistle-down hair w- would probably get along. I mean, I don't know if Lawrence Strange is hot enough. Probably not. Um, I don't think he's sufficiently handsome, but uh, yeah, Kristen Thompson is wondering if Jeremy Johns was a seventh son. Maybe, yeah. Uh, or maybe he was a widow's son, right? Yeah, I, be- I, be- I bet his mom's a widow. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, absolutely. It's... Uh, now, I suspect both uh, Carita and uh, Brian Yoder are sort of one, sort of speculating, always holding out the possibility um, that it's it's not actually magical. Um, and of course, as Brian points out, all that's waiting for him on the other side is a perfectly mundane yeoman who just who tells him that the Mister Wyvern in question died. Um, uh, that's that's what's a perfectly natural explanation for why it's overgrown because the man who lived here is dead and his land has been lying, you know, idle for, uh, for several years. That's, 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 that's all. It's just that. Um, uh, so, um, um, yeah, yeah. So what's the effect? We come back to the larger question. Why? Why do we get introduced to Jonathan Strange this way? Jonathan Strange is differentiated from his cruel father, right? He is not Lawrence Strange. And we see him eager to differentiate himself from his father in the eyes of his future wife, right? He's not going to treat people like his dad. He's going to show her how... uh, um, Oh, I'm blanking. What's her name? Before Arabella's... Maiden name Wood Woodhope, is that it? Woodhope, yeah, Woodhope. Okay, thank you, Woodhope. Miss Woodhope. Um. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I never actually thought about her name before. Miss Woodhope, right? Like she, she, she would hope. Uh, uh, you know, under some circumstances, that's awesome actually, just might be my favorite all of a sudden that has leapt forward to be perhaps my favorite name uh, in the entire 
book. But anyway, um, okay, so he's not his dad, right? He's not a horrible monster like his dad. And yet there's this atmosphere of fairy and of ominous, nasty, nightmare fairy, not gentle, sweet fairy, right? Um, But there is this element of fairy all the way through. Sharon, that's a great way to say it. As Sharon says, he is born and raised in a climate of otherness. Um, Yes, yes, exactly. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, but notice, again, Clark is so patient um, and so subtle. She doesn't make anything from that, right? Um, Not only does she not make any overt claim that there is fairy magic actually associated, actually, truly, in sober sober reality, fairy magic associated with his family. She never says that at all, right? This is just a mere impression that Jeremy Johns have, who, remember, may already be developing a fever by this time, right? So um, even the impression that the saplings are beating him as he goes by probably ju- he's probably just being delusional right or perhaps even remembering this um and anyway okay so so not only does she not say that there's actual fairy magic she doesn't even come back to this right we're going to drop this entirely other than those references the first time we meet Jonathan when he's thinking about Miss Woodhope and how he's going to differentiate himself from his father do we ever even get a reference to Lawrence Strange again I mean, he never comes up. We're never even going to talk about this again. But we, as readers, have been um, uh, have been supplied with this. This is the this is the uh, the context in which we're given Jonathan Strange, and given how he, from the beginning, is a staunch defender of fairy magic and the fairy element of English magic. That seems kind of interesting. So here's Jonathan's decision to become a magician. A magician, said Henry, quite astonished as his future brother-in-law. Why should you want to do that? Strange paused. He did not wish to tell his real reason, which was to impress Arabella with his determination to do something sober and scholarly. And so he fell back upon the only other explanation he could think of. I met a man under a hedge at Monk Gretton, who told me that I was a magician. (laughs) Well, Jonathan, I think you've succeeded uh, in uh, uh, finding a reason which is different from your desire to impress Arabella, as she was doubtless <laughs> under a hedge. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, she it, she was doubtless less impressed by the fact that you d- did this because a man under a hedge told you that you should. Um yeah, John, sober and scholarly is interesting, isn't it? Um, that um, I, that's his association, right? It isn't like, you know, associated with the Raven King or fairies explicitly, right? It's He seems to be talking about, he seems to be putting it anyway into the context of theoretical magicians, right? Those scholarly gentlemen um, who study magic. Um, uh it's not that he doesn't intend to be a practical magician, but that's plainly the sort of the category that he seems to put it into. 
which is then immediately belied by the fact that he's like, yeah, I was. It was uh, prophesied by a by a, 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 a magician or somebody, uh, some raggedy man who's sleeping under a hedge. Mister Redmond laughed, approving the joke. Excellent, he said. Did you indeed? Said Missus Redmond. I do not understand," said Henry Woodhope. "You do not believe me, I suppose," said Strange to Arabella. "Oh, on the contrary, Mister Strange," said Arabella with an amused smile. "It is all of a piece with your usual way of doing things. It is quite as strong a foundation for a career as I should expect from you." "Oh, the burn," Henry said. "But if you are going to take up a profession, and I cannot see why you should want one at all now that you have come into your property, surely you can choose something better than magic." It has no practical application. Henry, plainly thinking of theoretical magicians, right? Oh, but I think you are wrong," said Mister Redman. "There is that gentleman in London who confounds the French by sending them illusions. I forget his name. What is it he calls his theory? Modern magic. But how is that different from the old-fashioned sort?" wondered Missus Redmond. "And which will you do, Mister Strange?" What a wonderful set of questions. How is it different from the old-fashioned sort of magic, and which will you do, Mister Strange? Right? What marvelous questions! Okay, so notice another thing that we have learned here. Right here, still on page two hundred and fifty-seven, we're still piecing together what English magic is, and here we have a plain piece of evidence that this theory of mo- this thing that Mister Norrell is doing. Which he is calling modern magic is described by Mr. Redmond as a theory, right?、Um, it's some newfangled idea. Not、uh, remember, Mr. Norrell has been talking all along like he is going to bring English magic back, right? That's not how they understand it, right? He's not doing the old-fashioned sort of magic. He's doing this other thing, modern magic, right? It's, it's, it's different. But but how is it different? Mrs. Redmond doesn't know. And which one is Strange going to do? Indeed,、um, yeah. John Moline thinks that Mister Norrell would not be best pleased that they couldn't remember his name.、Uh, and I suspect you are correct about that.、Um, so let's look at some more old. Let's look at some very old-fashioned magic here. Because、um, we immediately after, or as we are getting introduced to Strange, we are learning about some more old-fashioned magic. Here's the Shadow House. One of his boldest achievements,、uh, that is, that、uh, magician who didn't really do magic, Absalom, was to persuade the King of Denmark to pay a great handful of diamonds for a spell which Absalom claimed would turn the flesh of the King of Sweden into water. Naturally, the spell did nothing of the sort. But with the money he got for half these jewels, Absalom built the shadow house. He furnished it with Turkey carpets and Venetian mirrors and glass and a hundred other beautiful things.、Uh, glass, of course, being very precious at this time, which is the early seven, very early seventeenth century.、Uh, Turkey carpets, Venetian mirrors, and glass. Right.、Um, All the modern amenities and a hundred other beautiful things. And when the house was completed, a curious thing happened, or may have happened, or did not happen at all. Some scholars believe, and others do not, that the magic Absalom had pretended to do for his clients began to appear of its own accord in the house. On a moonlit night in 1610, two maids looked out of a window on an upper floor and saw twenty or thirty beautiful ladies and handsome gentlemen dancing in a circle on the lawn. 
In February 1666, Valentine, Valentine Great Rakes, an Irishman, of course, held a conversation in Hebrew with the prophets Moses and Aaron in a little passageway near the great linen press. In 1667, Mrs. Penelope Chelmorton, a visitor to the house, looked in a mirror and saw a little girl of three or four years old looking out. As she watched, she saw the child grow up and grow older, and she recognized herself. Mrs. Ch Chelmorton's reflection continued to age until there was naught but a dead, dry corpse in the mirror. The reputation of the Shadow House is based upon these and a hundred other such tales. Okay. Old-fashioned magic. Right? Um... First, what do we see described here? Um, the first point, and uh, I, I think, uh, Emily, you're very right to point out that there's an air of mystery and disagreement regarding the facts of the story, right? The whole thing, we're, the context of the whole thing we're told, many stories grew up, it's uncertain how many of them were true and to what extent we can believe any of them, right? That's um, part of what we see. And yet, it seems likely that some of them were true, right? If let's, let's, let's assume they're true, for now, for argument's sake. Let's assume these are examples of old-fashioned English magic. At the very least, even if they're not true examples of old English magic, they will at least tell us what kinds of stories, what kind of magical acts are associated with the minds of storytellers with old English magic. And that will still get us somewhere, right? Um... And you're right, John, that uh, this is taking place after the end of English magic. The, the, the Raven King is gone from England at this time. Um, he's been gone now for some time through the 17th century. Um, the golden age of magic in England is over. So the fact that English magic is lingering in the house, if indeed English magic is lingering in the house, um, is, for that reason, a pretty big deal, right? Um... So what kind of um, what kind of magic do we get? What do we see? What kind of patterns can we see in this uh, in this magic? What do you notice? Yeah, McNeil says uh, encounters. Yes, magic mirrors and fairy circles. John Moline points out. Um, yes, yes. Um, it's unpredictable and uncontrolled, James. Absolutely. It's not under anybody's control. It's just happening here. Um, encounters. Um, going back, uh, Mick, to what you were saying. Um, they, uh, these two maids look out and they see 20 or 30 beautiful ladies and handsome gentlemen dancing in a circle. Um, so we do see a fairy ring there, John, as you've been pointing out. And the beautiful ladies and handsome gentlemen would presumably be fairies. That seems like a fairly safe uh, guess. Um, there's that encounter with Moses and Aaron. Um, uh, the the uh, Valentine Great Rakes, which is a pretty good name. Um, uh, just make sure you know the vocabulary. You know what a rake is, right? Um, a rake is a... Um, uh, it's a... It's, a, it's not slang exactly, uh, but it's a colloquial English term for a 
gentleman of low moral character, um, a guy who's always partying out on the town and who's very likely to try to take advantage of young ladies um, and uh, engage in such scandalous pastimes as uh, playing cards for money and things like that. Um, that's a rake. Um, so uh, that this guy's last name is Great Rakes uh, is pretty decisive, and then it's an inside joke that he's an Irishman. Um, that is, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, the kind of insult that a 19th century person would make at the expense of an Irishman, basically. Um, uh, it's all, uh, it's all very funny. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Kate Neville says one wonders what Moses and Aaron would have to say to an Irish rake. Well, exactly. It's, the point seems to be the, 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 the contrast there, right? Um, this is not, you know, a great and learned divine came to the home and saw a vision of Moses and Aaron and conversed with them in Hebrew. Um, then you might think it was a divine vision, right? No, no, no. It's the contrast. Uh, the Irishman, Valentine Great Rakes, um, not only encounters uh, uh, Moses and Aaron, whom we will perhaps not expect to choose him uh, to speak to, but he also holds the conversation in Hebrew, which doubtless he himself had not studied. Um, so, uh, it's, it's, um, uh, an encounter. I, 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 but it, it's comically, it's a comically improbable encounter as well. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I kind of wonder, Brian, why the king of Denmark wasn't more upset that the king of Sweden's flesh didn't turn into water, right? I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, decisive effect that uh, Absalom claimed to, be, claimed to be able to, uh, um, uh, to, uh, to perform and failed to perform it. Uh, you'd think there might have been some repercussions there. Anyway, okay, Point overall point here is we see the way in which this house seems to be a place where things come into contact, right? Jonathan Strange has come here, we learn, in order to try to speak with a dead magician, in fact, Absalom's daughter, uh, who lived here. Um, and... Um, uh, Yeah. Um, anyway, um, why? Because he has no books, right? He's trying to learn magic. So how does Jonathan Strange go about learning magic? By going to this place where sort of the boundaries between England and fairy seem rather thin, right? Um, he is appealing, in a sense, to this sort of inchoate tradition of English magic. This English magic, which, for whatever reason, was welling up here, in this spot, right? Um, but it's not quite, um, it's not quite whatever happens, right? Um, that is, it's, uh, it's, it's not quite for whatever reason. There might, in fact, be a reason why magic was welling up here so much. Um, and this comes in the footnote to this passage. Some scholars, Jonathan Strange among them, have argued that Maria Absalom knew exactly what she was about when she permitted her house to go to rack and ruin. It is their contention that Miss Absalom did what she did in accordance with the commonly held belief that all ruined buildings belonged to the Raven King. 
This presumably would account for the fact that the magic at the Shadow House appeared to grow stronger after the house fell into ruin. All of man's works, all his cities, all his empires, all his monuments will one day crumble to dust. Even the houses of my own dear readers must, though it be for just one day, one hour, be ruined, and become houses where the stones are mortared with moonlight, windowed with starlight, and furnished with the dusty wind. It is said that in that day, in that hour, our houses become the possessions of the Raven King. Though we bewail the end of English magic, and say it is long gone from us, and inquire of each other how it was possible that we came to lose something so precious, let us not forget that it also waits for us at England's end, and one day we will no more be able to escape the Raven King than in this present age we can bring him back. Quotation from The History and Practice of English Magic by Jonathan Strange, published John Murray, London, 1816. Um, okay. Notice the fun with time that Susanna Clark is having here, right? She's f- giving part of this sort of an early frame for Jonathan Strange, and she's explaining it by giving us a quotation from Jonathan Strange in the future, right? So we get the voice of Jonathan Strange from the future commenting back upon what is going on here at... Um, at Jonathan Strange's beginning. Um, And um, Janice, you're absolutely correct. Um, According to Jonathan Strange here, the Raven King is the once and future magician king of England. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, The, that Arthurian role is very much being, uh, uh, being played by, uh, by the Raven King here. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian Yoder says, I remember that way back in Chapter 1 when we met John Segundus, I was wondering whether he was not going to become Jonathan Strange, as in a second persona of his, partly because of the events of the beginning and also because of the closeness of the names. And the fact, uh, I would add, Brian, that uh, that strange seems like it could so easily be a pseudonym, right? Um, I was thinking the same thing, Brian. Uh, That was my suspicion um, at the very beginning uh, when reading chapter one and two also. Um, uh, So anyway, okay. So we see Jonathan Strange from his beginning. Again, this first orientation that we're getting to Jonathan Strange. Which kind of magician is he going to be? The old kind or the new kind? We see him reaching back into the past. He's got two. Right, he has no books he can read, um, so he has to do all that he can, and all he can do is reach back into the past to, through this tradition of English magic, through the fairy magic which seems to be at work here in the Shadow House, and back through that to ultimately to the Raven King himself, um, to whom all ruins belong, and whose presence would seem to be strong here. Um, Here's Strange meeting Mr. Norrell, then. As to what I shall write, that is in the review, he's going he's, he's gonna, he's to write an article for the Gentleman's Magazine. As to what I shall write, continued Strange, I do not quite know yet, but it will most likely be a refutation of Portishead's article in The Modern Magician. Did you see it, sir? It put me in a rage for a week. He sought to prove that modern magicians have no business dealing with fairies. 
It is one thing to admit that we have lost the power to raise such spirits. It is quite another to renounce all intention of ever employing them. I have no patience with any such squeamishness. But what is most extraordinary is that I have yet to see any criticism of Portishead's article anywhere. Now that we have something approaching a magical community, I think we would be very wrong to let such thick-headed nonsense pass pass unreproved. Strange, apparently thinking that he had talked enough, waited for one of the other gentlemen to reply. After a moment or two of silence, Mr. Lascelles remarked that Lord Portishead had written the article at Mr. Norrell's express wish, and with Mr. Norrell's aid and approval. Um, The distance, of course, between Strange and Norrell and their assumptions about magic, their outlook on magic, uh, is very, very plain, very, very forceful. Um... In the beginning, this is indeed a very awkward way to start a relationship, Brian. Um, absolutely. Um, what a fascinating observation, Nancy. That's great. She, uh, she says, if Norrell seems old because of his miserliness, remember uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, what's her name? Darn it, I've forgotten her name. You know the P, uh, the 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 housekeeper of uh, Mr. Segundus. What's her name? Darn it, I've forgotten her name. Anyway, somebody remind me of the name of the perspicacious lady who said the thing about the miser. Um, anyway, remember she said she doesn't know if Mr. Norrell is actually old, but she imagines him old, right? Because he's so miserly. Nancy says, if Norrell seems old because of his miserliness, then Strange seems young because of his naivete. Mrs. Pleasance. Thank you, Brian. Um, yes, Mrs. Pleasance. Um, yes, it doesn't really matter how old strange actually is he seems young i agree um uh, that's a really that's a that's a that's a uh it's a fine idea there nancy um but uh yeah okay so again very very clearly showing us the great distance uh the great difference in how they approach things but now let's put a little pressure on this here wherein exactly does the difference lie between the two of them what is the distinction... What's the subject... Again, it's easy enough to sort of see how he's offended Mr. Norrell and focus on that. It's easy to see that the two of them have different ideas about magic without thinking any more about that, but but we can think some more about that, right? What exactly is the issue at stake here? It's not even exactly about English magic. It kind of is... But it's not really about the nature of magic. Yeah, I mean, there are some other issues. Uh, I I mean, I agree, um, uh, Nancy, that scholarly discourse is, in a sense, this subject, right? You know, that... uh, Of all of the naive things Strange says here... um, not the least naive of his statements is um, his statement, but what is most extraordinary is I have yet to see any criticism of Portishead's article anywhere. I can't think for the life of me why nobody has spoken out against this, right? Because he has no idea that there is not, in fact, an open scholarly community of magicians, but rather that, in fact, Mr. Norrell is controlling everything behind the scenes. So, yes, in a sense, scholarly discourse is uh, a a subject, a theme here. Um, But explicitly, um, 
Uh, Kristen, I agree. The use of fairies, right? The, the, the question of how wise is it? Is it, or is it or is it not a good idea for a magician to deal with fairies? Notice, remember, Strange says there's no sense denying that we, we no longer have the power to do this, right? Um, so it would be silly, one could extend his argument perhaps, and say it would be silly to argue that English magic is essentially tied to fairy magic. That there can be no English magic without fairies. Because they don't know how to summon fairies, and yet they can still do magic. So clearly you can't really argue that. He wouldn't go so far as that. The issue is not, is English magic connected with fairies? Again, it's not that that's not an issue that's going to come up, and they're going to talk about this later, but that's not the topic here. The topic here, what Portishead's article says, is he, he sought to prove that modern magicians have no business dealing with fairies. It's not that they... It's not about whether or not they can. It's not about whether or not they did. It's not whether it's it's about whether or not they should, right? And his argument that they should not, right? That's Portishead's argument, which strange, which drives Strange into a rage for a week. So it's about their willingness to do this thing, um, which Strange dismisses as squeamishness. Right? That's how he characterizes this attitude, um, which is remarkable. Uh, Kevin Ulrich makes a great comment. Kevin says, Norrell is afraid and wants to control everything. Strange is excited at the new world he's discovering and excited to explore the possibilities. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's obvious from their relationship with the war that Strange has a great deal more personal courage uh, than Norrell does. And so the idea that Strange would be um, uh, would be less uh, intimidated by or, or, or sort of scared of uh, you know worried about dealing with fairies is not surprising, right? Um, but um, but I think there's more to it. There's more to it than that. Um, it's not just about courage. Like, yeah, I agree, it's dangerous, but uh, but I, I don't care. I'm willing to take the chance, right? That's not what he's saying. Um, he seems appalled by the idea it's mere squeamishness to say you shouldn't do it. He's not saying, yeah, it's dangerous, but, I, but I'll do it anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> Chris, Chris Wang says that Norrell is like Baggins and Strange is like Took. Uh, there, you know, the parallel works in some ways. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's move forward a little bit in this same discussion, however, when... Uh, um, Mr. Strange has uh, uh, laid another egg in the conversation here and talked about, uh, mentioned the Raven King. Mr. Norrell nodded. It is one of my ambitions to make that man as completely forgotten as he deserves, he said. But surely, sir, without the Raven King there would be no magic and no magicians? That is the common opinion, certainly. But even if it were true which I am very far from allowing, he has long since forfeited any entitlement to our esteem. What were his first actions upon coming into England? To make war upon England's lawful king and rob him of half his kingdom. And shall you and I, Mr. Strange, let it be known that we have chosen such a man as our model? That we account him the first among us? Will that make our profession respected? Will that persuade the king's ministers to put their trust in us? I do not think so. No, Mr. Strange, if we cannot make his name forgotten, then it is our duty, yours and mine, to broadcast our hatred of him, to let it be known everywhere our great abhorrence of his corrupt nature and evil deeds. 
Okay. So what's Mr. Norrell's argument exactly? What does this boil down to? What's he focused on? What's his... What's his point? Because see, I know that um, there are times I caught myself reading this book for the first time, thinking, you know, hearing Norrell talk about the Raven King. I, I, I found myself interpreting that as, well, okay, maybe Mr. Norrell really just means this for the best. That, 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 that is to say, he's worried that other English magicians are going to... They're going to focus too much on the Raven King, and the Raven King is dangerous, right? And magicians, in trying to invoke the Raven King or to study the Raven King... Um, you know, they don't really know what they're getting themselves into. So he's trying to protect other English magicians who don't understand how dangerous this all is, right? That that seems kind of reasonable, except for one point. You see, of course, the flaw in my own reasoning there. That assumes Mr. Norrell is interested in anybody else practicing magic at all, right? He's not trying to protect other English magicians from uh, doing Raven King magic. He is trying to prevent any other English people from performing magic at all, right? So, uh, why should he care? Um, but anyway, and that's certainly not his emphasis here, right? Yeah, Chris, it's all about upholding the monarchy. Um, absolutely, Kevin. Kevin Ulrich says, allegiance to the Raven King is treachery against England. Absolutely. That's, that, that's how he characterizes it here, right? It's sort of a political thing. But it's not just about politics. It's not, this is not, so, so, I mean, because is Mr. Norrell saying, like, well, naturally, I have a great and spontaneous patriotism to our beloved land, and I just can't bear the idea of the Raven King, who took away half of the kingdom of the, of the you know, the anointed King of England, that's not how he's talking, right? How's he talking? He sounds that way at first. What were his first actions upon coming to England? To make war upon England's lawful king and rob him of half his kingdom. If he had gone on from there to say, and shall, uh, and shall you and I, Mr. Strange, as, as loyal English subjects, uh, bear to think of such a horrible breach upon our fine nation, right? That's not where he goes at all. Right? And shall you and I, Mr. Strange, let it be known that we have chosen such a man as our model. Right? It's not about spontaneous patriotism. It's about perception. Right? It's about... It's about... Yeah, uh, John, I agree with you. It's about patronage. Right? Um... Yeah, yeah, exactly, Nick. It's about his reputation. Um, uh, absolutely. absolutely. Will that make our profession respected? That's his goal. Remember, we saw that from the beginning. Remember the house that he bought, right? I want to make sure everybody knows that being a magician is a, is a more respectable profession uh, than, a, than a, a, a... at least as respectable as a lawyer and a good deal more than a physician, right? Um He's, he's, yeah, Donna, he is trying to establish himself as the first magician going forward. 
but of course what that's wrapped up in is defining what a magician is, right? A magician is certainly not some crazy-eyed guy from fairy who's going to come in and take half the kingdom away. No, 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 no. Do not have that association with magicians, right? No, no, no. Magicians are predictable baggins-like uh, uh, professional, learned gentlemen um, who are loyal to the king, right? That's that. Um, it's all about it's all about respect. We must broadcast our hatred of the Raven King. Let it be known everywhere our great abhorrence of his corrupt nature and evil deeds. Notice again, even here, he's not talking about spontaneous abhorrence and spontaneous hatred, like. Given you and I obviously abhor him, we must make sure everybody knows that, right? Or, you know, give warnings to all people. No, we must broadcast our hatred, uh, let it be known everywhere that we have great abhorrence. Um, Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, Yeah, Brian, I know I do have a hard time uh, uh, um, uh, leaving the Hobbit comparison behind. Yeah, it's all Chris Swank's fault. It is not my fault. She brought it up. It is absolutely not my fault. Um, here, let's go back to Childermas's cards. Since we're now talking about the Raven King, in this context, I wanted to come back to this. Here's Childermas talking about the card. Um, it's Mr. Norrell's fortune that's being told with the cards here. I do not seem to have copied this card very well. I never noticed before. The inking is badly done. The lines are thick and smudged, so that the Emperor's hair and robe appear almost black. And someone has left a dirty thumbprint over the eagle. The Emperor should be an older man than this. I've drawn a young man. Are you going to hazard an interpretation? No, said Vincuous, and indicated by a contemptuous thrust of his chin that Childermas should turn the next card. Four. L'Emperor. There was a short silence. That is not possible, said Childermas. There are not two emperors in this pack. I know there are not. If anything, the king was younger and fiercer than before. His hair and robes were black, and the crown upon his head had become a thin band of pale metal. There was no trace of the thumbprint upon the card, but the great bird in the corner was now decidedly black, and it had cast off its eagle-like aspects and settled itself into a shape altogether more English. It had become a raven." Childermas turned over the third card. Four, L'Empereur. And the fourth, four, L'Empereur. And by the, by the fifth, the number and name of the card had disappeared. But the picture remained the same, a young, dark-haired king at whose feet strutted a great black bird. Childermas turned over each and every card. He even examined the remainder of the pack, but in his anxiety to see, he fumbled, and the cards somehow fell everywhere. Black kings crowded about Childermas, spinning in the cold gray air. Upon each card was the same figure, with the same pale, unforgiving gaze. There, said Vincula softly, that is what you may tell the magician of Hanover Square. That is his past and his present and his future. That is so awesome. Um, I agree, Brian. That scene absolutely gave me chills when I read it for the first time. Um, Heck, it just gave me chills again now, reading it for the third time. Um, So, what's happening here? I say this, and I don't know 
the answer to this question. John, Millane, that's exactly the question. Is this Vincuous's magic? Is this the Raven King's magic? We don't know. We don't know. Um, uh, who is Vincuous? Is he, in fact, the... I mean, he's the page. Again, the, I guess the page of... Uh, the page of cups. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, yeah. Kate Neville is thinking about parallels between Jonathan Strange and Stephen Black. Um, yeah, and notice... Uh, did you notice, Kate, the description of the crown? Um, I was just noticing how the crown... the You know, as the picture changes... <clears throat> and uh, morphs more and more emphatically into the Raven King. How the crown shrinks down to become a crown exactly like the one that Stephen Brown, uh, that Stephen Pl- not not Brown, Stephen Black uh, put on his head um, later on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, Brian says it, it's interesting that Vincuous lays out the cards, but has Childermas turned them. Yes, yes, it is. Um, you'll remember later on that. Mr. Norrell dismisses all this as mere sleight of hand by Vincuous, right? That Childermas has been deceived uh, by a, you know, by a, a, a con artist, right? Vincuous is a known con artist. This is what he does. Um, and he laid out the cards, right? You know, he um, uh, he's the one who... So he could easily have switched them. But Childermas's response to that is kind of hard to get around. Childermas says, how could he possibly have known that I was going to produce a deck of cards of this kind, right? Um, yeah, in theory, had he known that, he could have pre-prepared a set of Emperor cards that all looked like the Raven King uh, and swapped them. That's theoretically possible, but it is not possible that without magic he could possibly have known that Childermas... Even Mr. Norrell doesn't know that Childermas has a deck of these cards. Um, and uh, and Brian, I agree, the, ch- the cards do seem to change back and we're not told that Vincuous picked them up. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Nancy, that's a wonderful question. So again, the, John was asking, you know, is this the Raven King's magic at work? Is this Vincuous's magic at work? Um, Nancy suggests another theory, um, that perhaps Childermas's own magic has something to do with it. Um, he does seem to have created a really good tarot deck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the the picture of Jonathan Strange, right? There has to be magic involved. Either there's magic right now transforming the cards, which, in light of the Raven King cards, is certainly possible. Um, or else... But I don't think so. Not with the Jonathan Strange card. Not, not with the Knight of Wands card. Because when it turns it over, Childermas, who presumably is pretty familiar with this deck, right? Um, he turns it over, he doesn't say, hey, that's not what the Knight of Cups looks like, right? So, uh, whereas he does comment on this. So, um... Uh, so we do have um, reason to think that the picture of Jonathan Strange that is on the Knight of Cups, or Wands, rather, that is on the Knight of Wands, um, is uh, is is the thing that Childermas drew originally. So, Nancy, it is possible then, right, that it was, in fact, his own magic. Um, Childermas's own magic. Um, yeah. Oh, interesting. Kristen says, uh, Another interesting thing, if the crown is indeed depicted as the same, the gentleman with a, th- with a thistle-down hair's statement about it's not being a very good crown. Um, yeah, well, 
Christian, what he complains about is that he he's ashamed of the fact that he created it by magic. Uh, the orb and the scepter are, are are legit, right? Those are real, um, actual royal relics. Um, the crown is just his own hat transformed by magic. Um, so that's that's what the the, the gentleman with with the thistle down hair is saying. I doubt uh, that he is uh, sort of impugning the royalty of the Raven King necessarily. Um, anyway, I don't think we're gonna we can from within this scene alone resolve the question of whose magic is at work here and what's going on. But of course, let's not forget. Um, don't let's not get so caught up in the. Uh, um, the cards themselves and the sort of transformation of the cards that we miss the whole point of the cards, right? The fortune that Vincuous is telling, which is this is Mr. Norrell's fortune, right? And Vincuous, he couldn't interpret Childemus's fortune, but he can interpret this one, right? Um, this, the Raven King, is Mr. Norrell's past, present, and future. So, howsoever Mr. Norrell would like to separate himself from uh, um, the Raven King. Vinguis does not believe he's going to be able to uh, to do that. Um, yeah, John the Raven King's gone. He's not been around for 300 years. Um, but he's not dead. He's just gone. And you never know when he's going to come back. He's the Raven King, for crying out loud. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, the Raven King... It does seem like the Raven King is not really gone. Um, more thoughts, Mr. Norrell, on the Raven King. I agree that the Raven King has everything to do with it, that is, the association between fairies and English magic, said Mr. Norrell. But not, I think, in the way you suppose. Consider, if you will, Mr. Strange, that all the time the Raven King ruled northern England, he also ruled a fairy kingdom. Consider, if you will, that no king has ever had two such diverse races under his sway. Consider, if you will, that he was as great a king as he was a magician, a fact which almost all historians are prone to overlook. I think there can be little doubt that he was as much preoccupied with the task of binding his two peoples together, a task which he accomplished, Mr. Strange, by deliberately exaggerating the role of fairies in magic. In this way, he increased his human subjects' esteem for fairies, he provided his fairy subjects with useful occupation, and made both peoples desire each other's company. Yes, said Strange thoughtfully, I see that. It seems to me, continued Mr. Norrell, that even the greatest of Orient magicians miscalculated the extent to which fairies are necessary to human magic. Look at Pale! He considered his fairy spirits so essential to the pursuit of his art that he wrote that his greatest treasures were the three or four fairy spirits living in his house. Yet my own example makes it plain that almost all respectable sorts of magic are perfectly achievable without any assistance from anyone. What have I ever done that has needed the help of a fairy? I mean, please, honestly. He ends with a rhetorical flourish, right? Um, yeah, Nancy, you're absolutely right. Um, Kate points out, by the way, that Norrell's opinions here are, in her opinion, beyond the pale. Um, I agree. Uh, Nancy says it exactly just what I was thinking, Nancy. Um, his whole argument sounds very, very sensible right up until the last two sentences, right? Yeah, it gets completely 
undermined in the ears of the reader um, by that last sentence. Um, and uh, yeah, Brian, I, 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 it sounds like you're suggesting that there's a kind of um, there's a kind of tautology in a sense in Mr. Norrell's thinking that, as he says, uh, uh, it makes uh, uh, my own example makes it plain that almost all respectable sorts of magic are perfectly achievable without the assistance from anyone, from any one, right, from any one fairy, uh, much less three or four. Um, uh, yeah, th- there does seem to be a kind of tautology there, right? Uh, uh, magic that does not involve fairies is respectable, and therefore um, he does all this respectable magic without assistance from anyone, from any fairy servant, right? Um, yeah, so Neo, absolutely, his magic with Lady Pole is not respectable magic in almost any sense, in fact, right? Um, however, I don't want to lose the larger argument that he's making here. Again, it's very decidedly undermined at the end there by the um, equivocation that he offers in the end. Um, But his argument about the Raven King does make a certain amount of sense. Um, And um, uh, yeah, exactly, Sharon, that's just what I was going to say. Do we throw out all of this information based on those last two questions? I don't think we're, I don't think that we do. I don't think that necessarily means that sh- that uh, uh, that Mr. Norrell is perfectly uh, fair in his assessment here. Um, but one of the things that I think it certainly does do, at the very least, Mr. Norrell has succeeded in reminding us that the Raven King spans the two kingdoms, right? He, the defining element of the Raven King's character is that he stands with one foot in England and one foot in fairy, right? Um, He is the ruler over the fairies as well as the ruler over the English. Um, And Mr. Noro is certainly right that that needs to be remembered. But I don't think that that necessarily means that the connection between English magic and fairies is therefore, by definition, merely a kind of political machination on the Raven King's part. Um, uh, That business seems to be a little bit uh, different. (laughs) Brian says, Mr. Norrell is justifying himself. I wonder what his ring monologue would be like. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I agree. But see, see, Brian, now you're just laying snares for me, right? You're like, oh, it worked for Chris Swank, now I'll do it too. I'm on to you. I'm totally on to you. Um, okay. I was just looking... F- yeah, we can go. Let's do two more. Um, okay, so... We have a strong difference opinion, uh, 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 of opinion about fairies and English magic between Strange and Norrell, as we saw. The link between them is formed by the Raven King. Um, is, is, you know, is that just a political move on his part, or is it in fact essential? As Jonathan says, is the traditional belief, and which he himself seems to accept, uh, that English magic is derivative of fairy and that the the raven king brought it with him uh from uh brought it with him from fairy tom hillman says i think it's all based on boethius 
I will not be drawn. I will not. I will not. I defy you. Yeah, Sharon was just saying the same thing. You guys are awful. No, 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 no. I will not be drawn. Uh, so let's look at fairy magic. Um, in the spirit, in a sense, of, uh, of, tr- of resolving the debate, or let me say this in a different way, um, Strange and Norrell have different opinions about this. What external evidence do we get from the rest of the story to bring to this question? Um, you know, we get the, the, the discussion of these two learned gentlemen, of these two magicians. Um, how do we know what's right and wrong? How do we know sort of where to stand here? None of these miracles did anything to raise poor Stephen's spirits, right? So this is uh, all the fairy magic that's being done for Stephen Black's benefit, um, right? All of these uh, these miraculous uh, uh, um, blessings that are being sent to him. Remember the dog who carries the message and the random guy who shows up to... Uh, pay give Stephen money to pay him back for a, a bet that Stephen never made. None of these miracles did anything to raise poor Stephen's spirits. They served only to emphasize the eerie character of his present life. He knew that the overseer, uh, the guy who gave him money, the dog, and the mayor, and the aldermen were all acting against their natures. Overseers loved money. They did not give it away for no good reason. Dogs did not patiently pursue strange quests for weeks on end, and mayors and aldermen did not suddenly develop a lively interest in Negro servants they had never seen. Yet none of his friends seemed to think that there was anything remarkable about the course his life was taking. He was sick of the sight of gold and silver, and his little room at the top of the house in Harley Street was full of treasures he did not want. Okay. Um, So... What do we learn about fairy magic here? The, I get, you know, I think this is one of the things I think is so fascinating about the way that the story of Lady Pole and Stephen Black is sort of woven in here, right? Um, and it, um, Tom, it was you that brought up Dracula earlier. This was remind. This is the part that was reminding me of Dracula. Actually, um, it's just like those scenes in the sort of second quarter of Dracula. Um, after we get the first four chapters with Jonathan Harker in Transylvania, and then we come back to England so that we, as readers, have been oriented to uh, Dracula and what he is and what he does, and we see him acting and we know how to interpret it, but the people around are still sort of ignorant. Um, It it reminded me of this, right, that um, we get people talking about fairy magic um, and how, you know, it doesn't, it's not in England anymore, and it's a shame, really. Well, Mr. Strange thinks it's a, it's a, it's a shame, Mr. Norrell does not. Um, notice that the one thing Strange is willing to concede, right, the thing that they agree on is that fairy magic is not really operative anymore, right? Um, it doesn't really work. Well, of course, Mr. Norrell knows it's not exactly true, as he, in fact, summoned him. But anyway, point is, while this is going on, meanwhile, there's fairy magic all around them. And in fact, in the very homes, just as uh, Dracula is busily uh, present right there in the background of where people are sort of wondering what on earth is going on. Anyhow, um, it, as I said, it, it reminded me of those passages in Dracula very much. Um, yeah, it's, it's the dramatic irony, Tom. It's, 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 it's a very similar kind of uh, breed, it seems to me, of dramatic irony. Um, so, what, what do we learn here? about fairy magic? What what do we see about fairy magic? Um, 
Karina says, we learn that it is not a delightful thing to be besties with a fairy. Disney is full of lies. Yes, yes, Disney is full of lies about fairy. Stephen Black and Lady Pole would probably punch you in the face uh, if you uh, uh, went on about fairy princesses and things. Um, What do we learn about it? Well, look, Stephen is being blessed, right? He's being given gift after gift. Um, The, you know, the, 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 the gentleman with the thistle-down hair is the unwavering friend of Stephen Black, right? So that's good, right? It is inexorable, Sharon says. Yeah, I think that's a good word. Um, uh, yeah, Philip says it's flashy and, uh, attra- and alluring and everything, but in the end it's not profitable to humans. Profitable, Philip, is a really interesting word here, right? As I mean, you'd say, it looks like Stephen Black has reaped an enormous profit, right? His his room is full of treasures. Uh, and this is just money, uh, like the 25 magical guineas, um, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's treasures. I mean, Huge treasures. Um, good, yeah. Kevin uh, Ulrich says that we, we see that Stephen is a very honest guy and doesn't want people manipulated for his good. And the manipulation is the key thing here, right? Um, so I agree with both of the two halves of your statement. One, that we see fairy magic consistently manipulating people and pushing them, as Stephen says, to um, act against their natures, or as Stephen thinks, anyway. That's what he objects to. They are acting against their natures. So fairy magic causes people to act in unnatural ways. Even the way in which nobody notices this stuff, right? None, none of his friends think, seem to think there was anything remarkable. Um, I love the moment. There's another very similar um, under, uh, line of understatement when he gets the, uh, the, the, the scepter, Right, uh, when he, you know, he uh, he almost catches the thief who happens to be stealing this Anglo-Saxon scepter, and uh, uh, and uh, and the guy who's who you know was desperate to recover it finds him and says that he should really keep it for his effort in attempting to catch the thief. And I love the understatement involved in the next sentence when his servants, who are running along with him to chase after the thief, all nod as if they saw the sense in this. <laughs> right? Uh, fairy magic in, in, in uh, at work. Right? Um, this is uh, um this is not normal, this is not natural. Fairy magic is twisting not only the perceptions of people, making them see things that aren't there, um, but twisting the very nature of things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Chris Swank says, uh, it's like a perverse Cinderella where the fairy godfather is dragging a reluctant mortal to the ball. Yeah, I mean, it, it does turn that fairy tale on its head, right? Oh, I wish I could go to the ball, but oh, I, I need the intervention of a fairy to make it possible, right? Yeah, it's this like this horrible, twisted inversion of the Cinderella story. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great parallel, or sort of anti-parallel, Chris. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so... Good. Rachel, I think that's this is an excellent point. Um, Rachel Draper says, There seems to be a great divide between what fairies think people want, 
versus what people actually want. Or maybe the fairy is giving Stephen what many people would want, but not what Stephen specifically wants. They are victims of a generalization. Maybe. I'm not sure it's just a generalization. That is, I'm not sure that anybody else, if it, any, anyone else other than Stephen Black would be no end pleased, but just by a piece of ill luck, the fairy here has lighted upon the one man in London who doesn't care for these things. I mean, there's an element of that, I think. Stephen does seem to be a remarkable person. Um, but I don't think it's just that. Um, I think that I, I, I agree, Rachel, with the first half, with the first part of your statement that there's a great divide between what fairies think people want and what people actually want. Um, I, but notice, yeah, there is a great divide, and yet, and yet, remember, Lady Pole right after she was raised from the dead, right? How did she talk? What did she do? Yes, Brian, exactly. Brian says, uh, I find it interesting, uh, Brian Yoder says, I find it interesting that the lady pole, who walked 20 times around the town square and wanted to dance longer than anyone, is sick and tired of processions and balls. Yeah, exactly. She loved dancing. And remember the comment that, like all girls of 19... She loved a ball, right? She loved dancing. Uh, and she, after her resurrection, of course, has this indefatigable uh, 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 ability to continue dancing and finds others, you know, the others who get tired after a mere three hours of dancing uh, to be poor, weak creatures, right? She pities them. Um, so how wrong is he? Now you can say he's already twisting her, but notice the narrator's right. Uh, I mean, I, you know... Uh, Kitty and Lydia love a ball, too, in Pride and Prejudice, right? They're not even 19 yet. But anyway, um, th- this is... this is It is normal, right? Most people would like money coming to them, right? Um, he's not totally right. So, now, again, Rachel, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think your observation is an awesome observation. And we see this again and again, Right? It's not that the gentleman with the thistle-down hair... I don't believe that he's toying with Stephen. He seems to be perfectly in earnest with Stephen. He seems to believe that he's, that he's actually pleasing Stephen Black. But Stephen Black is not pleased. As you say, Rachel, there is a great divide between what he thinks is going to please Stephen and what actually pleases Stephen. We see Stephen being continually tormented by what the gentleman with the thistle-down hair is doing for him and to him and around him. Right? And Lady Pole appears to be in the same situation. And yet, it's not, he's not just for Mars, right? He's not just coming in and totally failing in all ways to understand humans. He just doesn't quite get it, right? Um,. Kate, excellent point. So Kate Neville says very sensibly, okay, money, yes. Like the money that the overseer came and gave him from that, you know, phantom bet, yes. But scepters? Crowns? Kate asks. What can a servant do with them? Thistledown is actually quite old-fashioned. Yes, 
Yes. Why? So, is he completely mistaken about the crown and the scepter and the and the orb? Is um, is that in fact a ludicrously inappropriate gift for Stephen? Good. I agree, Janice. Agree with uh, Janice Hopper and James Lebeck, both of whom are saying that. Um, uh, Janice, I'll quote you: "The gentleman is giving Stephen what the gentleman thinks Stephen deserves, not what Stephen thinks he deserves, and not what Stephen wants." Yes, yes. And as Carita says, Thistledown perceives royalty, and that's enough. Yes, but there's more. He's not made this idea up out of whole cloth. This is not merely the gentleman with the thistle-down hair arbitrarily deciding, Stephen, you are awesome. I'm going to make you king just because I can, right? Um, As Brian Yoder appropriately reminds us, the servant said he must be a prince, right? Um, Yeah, he has that air of authority. The gentleman with the thistle-down hair is perceiving something that everybody else perceived about him, too the white servants who set out to show disdain for him, who look at him and say, there is no way I am taking orders from a black man. Right? Remember? They look at him with intending to snub him and be on their dignity, yet find themselves obeying him implicitly. And from this, they conclude that... um, From this, they conclude uh, that... um, um, that he must be a king in his own native land. And so it's 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 his intri- intrinsic native kingliness that brings out this respect, right? That is to say, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair appears to be perceiving something that other people are perceiving too. He's not just making... It's not arbitrary. It's not totally capricious. He's very insistent on it, right? Stephen's uncomfortable with it. But it doesn't come from nowhere. Any more than let's take Lady Pole to the ball every night comes from nowhere either, right? That's what she likes, right? She should be no end pleased. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sharon Hoff says, I was wondering at this point and throughout the story, is the gentleman also trying to set up Stephen in place of the Raven King? Well, I don't know. We don't have enough data to answer that question yet, Sharon, but, you know, I couldn't help but think that either. Again, especially when you notice the crowns are the same, and, okay, the Raven King isn't himself literally black, right? But this association of, I mean, he is the black king, right? And there is a connection between the two, it would seem, Right? A bunch of connections, right? I mean, once you start thinking about, once you start the exercise, compare and contrast Stephen Black and the Raven King, right? You can, you can, um, you can go there, right? Um, there are lots of connections you can make: the blackness, right? The kingliness, uh, the one foot in fairy and one foot in England, right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> Karita says she keeps wanting me to say that uh, uh, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair isn't crazy, so she can argue with me. Um, 
Yeah, no, no, I agree with you, Kurt. He, he, he's 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 crazy, um, but he's not coming from nowhere. The things, th- what he's doing to them, they receive them as afflictions. They are miserable, but he is not without he is not without reason to think that he is doing them a favor. Um. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that, Tom. Tom says that Stephen, of course, also means crown in Greek. You mean, is that what Stephen means in Greek? It means crown? I had no idea. Oh. Well, how about that? Oh. Yeah, like St. Stephen. Anyway, so, but yeah, right. So, Stephen, okay, it means both of them. So, there you go. See, so Stephen Black... His very name means Black. Is it Raven King Stephen Black? Right, right. Look at that. It's just mirror images of each other. Right. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Good. Good. Um, okay. Um, I'm gonna let you go. I'm keeping you late tonight. Um, I want to come back to the magic of Mr. Strange next time and uh, and certainly I want to be talking about uh, you know which will lead us to talk looking at uh, the magic that Jonathan Strange does and uh of course specifically his time in the war with the Duke of Wellington. Um uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Menzies says Stephen Black is kind of like serious black but not so obvious. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Not quite so obvious. Uh, yeah, very good. Very good. Anyway, okay. So more more next time. We'll keep thinking about the Raven King. We're going to focus on on uh, on uh, uh, Jonathan Strange and his, again, especially his time in the peninsula uh, in the war with the Duke, with the Duke of Wellington. Uh, that'll be uh, uh, that'll be a lot of fun. So thank you, everybody, for an awesome class tonight, and I look forward to uh, more of the... I have to admit that Jonathan Strange's time in the Peninsula was probably the part of the book that I enjoyed the most. Um, I absolutely loved the time with the Duke of Wellington, so uh, I look forward to to discussing it with you next week. Uh, Thanks very much. Don't forget, uh, next Tuesday, right? The 13th? Uh, Yeah, next Tuesday night, um, uh, our... uh, interview with Jim Butcher should be a really good time at 8 o'clock on Tuesday night you can go to our events page there that I was showing you to uh, to register thanks very much everybody, good night